0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, My guest on today's podcast kind of been my friend for a long time that I've actually never talked to. The way we're going to talk in this podcast, and he's going to talk about his new book, is my friend Chris Kimball. Welcome to the podcast, Chris.
1: Thank you. It's good to meet you. Um, I know this is all audio, but Richard, face to face.
0: (laughs) It is good. Do you go by Christian or Chris for our listeners?
1: This will be a longer answer than you want. I go by Chris. I go by Christian. I go by Christian E. Kimball. When when we got to the publishing for this book, the publisher came back to me and said, the way Amazon works, you're going to have to pick a name and use that forever for anything (laughs) you publish or write. And so we decided... Since I'd been using Christian E. Kimball professionally in my legal practice for years and years, we decided we'd for, for publication in the Mormon sphere, we would use Christian Kimball. But I go by Chris most of the time <laughs> with my friends.
0: I'm glad I asked that question. That was a very thoughtful and helpful answer. Um, just to introduce my friend Chris, um, he's a lawyer by profession. He's in his mid-60s. He's a married father of three. Um, he's going to talk about his story as a latter day saint, um, serving a bit as a bishop while i um, teaching law school at Boston University. This is about twenty five years ago and um, then being released from being bishop and f- and turned in his temple recommend, but didn't turn in his church membership and has stayed a member of the church, attending um, consistently and um, but not having a temple recommend. He'll talk about why that's been his path forward. And either Chris or I are suggesting that's your path forward. Chris is not prescriptive, but it's sharing his story. And the name of his book is called Living on the Inside of the Edge, a survival guide. So we hope this podcast will be helpful for those of you that are sort of struggling to stay in the church and actually want to stay in the church. And maybe something Chris shares with you in this podcast his book We'll give you principles to be able to stay if that's your goal. And the podcast might be helpful for those of you that have people that you love and care about that want to stay. And you're kind of working to develop a new set of tools to help them. Um, And so what we thought we'd do is Chris has got this story I wanted you to hear in the first part of the podcast. And then he's going to talk about the book, um, the reason he wrote the book, where to get the book, and what's the book in the book. And it's our prayer that this will be helpful. For you. Just on a personal note, Chris has been a mentor to me. He's going to talk about a Facebook group that he's a, a moderator of that I joined um, when I was in what I call my mini faith crisis. And it was mentors like Chris that had a steady voice in this space. And I wanted to find a way to stay that helped me to have a principles-based approach to move forward. Um, as I wanted to stay. So I'm grateful for Chris. And if I could go through the Zoom camera and give him a hug, I probably would because he's helped me. So is that okay for an introduction, Chris?
1: That's great. Um, And I'd appreciate a hug. (laughs) The Zoom won't let us do that, but, um, Yes. Should I, can I jump into a story?
0: Yes, jump in. And I, and Chris lives in Utah right now. I may not have mentioned that he is no longer in Massachusetts. He's lived in Chicago, but he's joining us from his home um, in the mountains of Utah. And it's, it's all yours, Chris.
1: And I you know for home, it's been Boston. It's been Chicago sometime in Washington, D.C. and uh, a lot of time now in Utah. Um, When I for purposes of this book, for this interview, I, you know, you could tell, I could tell a life story that would take us days, but what I'd like to do is tell the story in a way that emphasizes a, an all in 40 years and a on the edge, uh, 25 plus years. That's a, not unique story but i think it's an unusual pattern and i believe it positioned me to write this particular book so those are the parts i like to emphasize um i'm about as inside an insider as you could get in multi-generation mormon families on both sides my grandfather was spencer w kimball um, my father was, for all the life I can remember, a bishop in the bishopric, in the state presidency. Uh, we were active. Uh, at the same time, my father was a writer of church history. He was a, one of the early board members and editors for Dialogue. Mm. We were a well-educated. Uh, in church matters and church history, family kinds of things that we would talk about over the dinner table. Um, I one brief story that will illustrate how much of an insider I was growing up. When I was ten days shy of twelve years old, the ward in Madison, Wisconsin, was going to visit Nauvoo, the young the youth. And because my dad was in the bishopric, I was, and he was going as a, as a, as a leader. I was going along, and dad arranged with his cousin, who was a big wheel in the Nauvoo restoration program, and with his father, who was Spencer W. Kimball, then an apostle, that he would ordain me a deacon. To the ironic priesthood, and sitting in Heber C. Kimball's chair in the study of the Heber C. Kimball home in Nauvoo, which was otherwise cordoned off. So, eleven days shy of twelve years old, wow. I was ordained a deacon by my father at my grandfather's permission in my great-great-grandfather's chair. Um, wow, that's that's an insider, if you will. Um, Rapid forward to uh, the 1990s, I had been a missionary, married in a temple, um, mm-hmm. elders quorum president in multiple wards, uh, mm-hmm. high counselor in two different stakes with three different stake presidents, um, kind of done it all, um, working in the temple, um, other kinds of assignments, all the things you would check off as a fully active, engaged, um, white, male, fast-track church leader. That's how it would have looked and did look. Um, in the mid-1990s, in, I was called as bishop for the um, university ward in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was the ward my wife and I had met in as single students back in the 70s um you've already told my age so i (laughs) will we can we can move forward with that uh so i was i was get got to be a bishop back in the ward where we uh, met where i had grown up as a student um and and we split the ward and i ended up being the bishop of the Older half that we called the Longfellow Park Ward.
0: Yeah, I've been to that exists. ward. It still exists. I've been in that ward in the last two years as a visitor. It,
1: it's an unusual ward in that it's it's single adults, um, basically 25 and older, which is um, works in that area. It work. I think it works well. I don't think that's the most common way to create single adult wards, but I I think it works really well. So I had that assignment, um, it was a two year assignment as, as kind of by the book, I know that there are lots of variations, but that was a two year assignment. And um, it was stressful. Um, the stresses are a much longer story, which I will um, defer because that's not key to this particular uh, conversation, I guess. Got to the end of that time. And now I'm going to move to the edgy part of my life. Um, <laughs> that's that's 40 years, about as all in as it's possible to be. Uh, get to the end of my time as bishop. I'm released and, um, and have some... And I, I know lots of issues. I have lots of intellectual issues. I have lots of issues with... History. There have been a number of events that have really shaken my commitment. Um, the September sixth excommunications just a few years earlier were my friends being excommunicated. I mean that that was my peer group. That was really hard. That felt like the church kicking people out, whom were people I cared about, people who mattered to me. Um, there were other experiences, but the crunch, the real hard point for me with respect to church activity, regular, consistent, um, by-the-book church activity, came as I was thinking about the Temple Recommend interview, as a matter of fact, and um, Which I had done several hundred of in the previous two years and had found extremely stressful. I had come to the conclusion that those interviews didn't make sense. They were asking the wrong questions, that I didn't know the answers, that they were incoherent. And as I was contemplating and praying about and thinking about the whole Temple Recommend interview process, my body my knees started shaking my my body witnessed to me you will not do that you will not walk into that room for an interview and that became that crunch for me i paid attention and that so it isn't uh, it isn't as though there's an intellectual um this doesn't make sense i can go through all kinds of issues like that for me there was a physical manifestation you will not walk into that room and sit for an interview and um and I still feel that way today I I once in a while ask my body are you how are you feeling and the answer is still that my knees shake and I will not do it and it's it's a, it's a it's a, tra- it's a trauma response I understand that but it's real it is how I have processed this um, uh, the whole worthiness interview function of current church practice, and I simply can't and won't participate as a as a matter of consistency. Thinking as a matter of personal integrity, I took my temple recommend, saying I'm not going to do this anymore. I took my temple recommend to a man who was like my next door neighbor friend who was my then Bishop and, and handed it to him with a small note saying, I'm not going to do interviews anymore. And so to be consistent here, here it is. Um, It's, I mean, we're, we're still in touch. We've never talked about that event. I, I, it may come up later. I'm, I'm, I'm still, he's a, He's actually important in my life in some other ways, but that, that that's sort of not relevant. In the, in the same context, coming off that time as a bishop and, and some of the other experiences I had at that time left me very angry, uh, very angry about the church. And I, I, I want to say that because once in a while— now that in the twenty teens and twenty twenties, I'm talking, writing books, communicating, participating um, in conversation, people sometimes come back to me and say, "You've you got it all figured out. You've made peace. You know what you're doing. Um, it looks easy." And I I I remind myself and I remind them sometimes that after nineteen ninety six. There is in my life a period of about 10 years when I was so angry about the church that I I still went to church. But when I walked into the building, the whole front of the chapel looked red in my eye. It was like it was draped in red that registered in my head as anger. I am just angry about all of this. And I silenced myself. I made a decision not to talk. I mean, later, a good friend who became my bishop uh, as people move around. I mean, in my peer group, lots of my friends have been <laughs> bishops at different times. And that's uh, uh, an interesting experience to trade off. I'm, I'm going to be your bishop this year and you'll be my bishop next year. That kind of thing. Um, one of my friends become bishop advised, counseled me, said, "I, you have a lot of things to say about difficulties and anger um, but i would counsel you when you're at church when you're participating if you're going to speak at all that you speak of christ and him crucified um, in the words of paul and uh, i took that to heart i thought that was really good advice That uh and that got me through some more years um, that period Those 10 years and then the subsequent 10 years involved a lot of introspection, a lot of learning about—because I wasn't gone. I hadn't left the church I was attending. Once in a while, I would be asked to teach gospel doctrine. I sometimes got callings that I wouldn't accept. Sometimes I—I mean, whenever I was asked to teach, I would, um, on the condition that I would teach my way. That's actually a chapter in the book, by the way. <laughs> that's a, um i uh, but i spent a couple of decades figuring out how to make this work and in effect that learning how to make it work turns into this book so that it's not a matter of me sitting as an uh, as an academic thinking what would make sense it's me having lived that life for decades working it out, talking with people, wrestling with how does life work on the inside of the edge. I don't have a temple recommend. I don't do worthiness interviews. I am open and straight with my bishops over time about that role. I communicate with, I talk with my bishops. I, they, I pretty much peer-to-peer kind of conversation, having any anybody who's been a bishop, has a different kind of conversation with their current bishop than most people who haven't been and in fact that's one of the things i want to encourage people to learn for themselves is to talk with their bishop like they would if they'd had that experience and they were on both sides of the table at different times of their life um so now let's roll forward that's that's I would say enough about me, but uh, that's uh, uh, we'll, we'll we'll you'll see. Um, roll forward to 2015. 2015 is a is a key point in history for me and for a lot of my friends and for I think for the church. 2015 November 5th, the um, the fact that there was an exclusion policy that the church had a policy of. Um, excluding gay people who were married or who wanted to be married, um, not baptizing children of gay parents, uh, what became public. Um, I, I know a fair amount about how that became public, but that's not relevant immediately. Uh, it became public. We learned about it, and that was a shocker. I mean, that was really hard on me and led to some soul-searching with for myself and with friends in conversation about what are we going to do. And we watched people leave the church. I mean, my friends walked away, many resigning formally, um, others just stopping uh, participation, whether they took a formal step or not, just leaving. and. Two, two key things happened. I mean, that event led to two key things for purposes of this book. Um, one is that a man named Steve Evans, who sort of, we only knew each other by reputation and um, online sort of blogger knackle comments and, and, and posts. Um, Steve... I I don't know to this day what caused him to think of me, but he he wrote me a note. He wrote me a note and said, we are watching our friends leave the church. We need to write a book. Um, That planted the seed. I mean, the book didn't happen for years later, but that planted the seed of there is something to be done. There is something that needs to happen. And that stuck in my mind. Um, Steve, it turns out, is the proprietor of BCC Press. So when I did write a book, I went back to him and basically said, Do you want to publish this? This is this is what I took from that comment years ago. Um, the other thing that happened that was really critical is that I had been I had silenced myself. Nobody, no church leader ever told me to. Ever disciplined? Ever said you must do, you must not do? Um, I did have that counsel from a bishop saying, i you know, I counsel you to talk about Christ when you're at church," and I took that as good counsel, but it wasn't a command. It was, and and that didn't happen. But I had done it to myself. I had silenced myself. I had uh, shut myself down, and I, as I thought about. What am I going to do about this exclusion policy? I am really angry. I am really, I, I'm, I mean, in my wife's words, crying tears in my, um, I, I, I mean, there's actually a bit of poetry in the book that from that period. Um, in talking with my friends, some of whom left, some of whom stayed. My conclusion was that I would stay, partly because I was already so far out that there really wasn't any farther out to go. I mean, it was either it was sort of, you've already taken all those steps, you're you're so far out on the fringe, there's not much more to do, but I would stay on the condition that I would speak up, that I would no longer be silent, and that... Huh, Wherever the chips may fall, whatever it would help or hurt, um, I would tell my story. I would speak up. When I disagreed with something, I would say so. And I have, from that point on, been writing um, counseling essays, um, commentary. I don't know that it had wide circulation until this book. but. Without that decision, that sort of a condition of staying is that I would speak. Um, this book wouldn't happen without Steve Evans saying, we need to write a book. this book wouldn't happen. so that's a that's a turning point. that's a, um, a sort of a sharp jab. It's not like a happy thing. It's a sharp jab to say, get on with. It. And uh, that's a uh, yeah. There's, there's a story. Now we're to the book. Let me, let me, let me then talk about, because the book didn't happen immediately. Um, The next key thing that happened is that I, uh, uh, there's a story about how I found it, but I joined this Waters of Mormon group online on Facebook. Uh, Waters of Mormon is a private group. I mean, it has had different names over time. Um, It's, heavily vetted that is people apply and i understand you're going to provide a link yes. um, but i want to talk about that vetting process because i participated at waters of mormon for years and after a period of years i became a moderator i've done vetting i have been active there talking and writing and that Was a very important developmental stage for me in two ways. One is that I wrote things that people seemed to pay attention to. And uh, that said to me, oh, maybe I have a voice that matters. And some of that turned into parts of the book. Um, Another is that the vetting process showed me the helped me define an audience. Um, Waters of Mormon is very careful about who enters and who joins, and there are basically two requirements. One is that the person applying be in crisis, however they define it, that it's about them, that they have really um, hard times, they're wrestling, they're working, they're hurting. Um, this is not a place for people who want to watch what's happening, who are just curious. Um, it's a place for people talking about themselves. What's hard? What's hurting? How are they going to cope? And um, so I, I don't really like the word crisis, and we talk about that, but pretty much to be an appropriate participant at Waters and Moran you have to be in crisis. I mean, you have to be working on your own stuff, and and uh, that's the first definition. The second definition is that you want to engage; that you are at the moment trying to find a way to stay engaged with the church. And I was in that life, but I didn't know that there were others, and I. I'm not sure that most of the church world is aware that there are thousands of people like that. Thousands of people who are in a faith crisis, how, whatever label they use, but want to find a way to stay. I, and, and in fact, the reception of my book is telling me, because it's doing pretty well, I mean, it people is. are paying attention and people are buying and it's, <laughs> they a, are. No, it's, on the, it's on the best. It's number one bestseller in new Mormon releases. So I, I, what that's telling me is that the number of people in that audience who are troubled, who have questions, who are wrestling, but want to find a way to work with the church, who want to find a way to say, is a bigger audience than anybody new than anybody knows even today. And I am curious, but clearly that's my audience. That's the people I'm talking to. And participating at Waters of Mormon and vetting and seeing, sure, there are people who are just curious, and we send them away. Um, There are people who are on the road out and are just Looking for a way station as they leave the church, and we send them away. They're not. Um, they're not going to get a benefit from that group, and they're. They're not going to like it. Um, they're. They're. It's the questions about who's participating are not. They're not questions about whether you're a good person or not a good person. They're questions about whether you're a good fit, whether you're a fit for what that group is trying to do. Um, where and and the, and that. By the way, that vetting process is pretty tough. Um, people ask a lot of kind of personal questions, and uh, and uh, and it is a process that says no, as uh, not as often as it says yes. People pretty much sort themselves out to come. But I think it's important to know that that's both a serious vetting process and that there are hundreds, thousands of people who fit That model and that became um, a place where I learned a lot, where I had hundreds of conversations, and that became my target audience. That helped define the audience, and I I really believe that that's a necessary part of writing a book. I I, it is not a book that works, or a book that helps, or a book that is um, has has an audience is to define your audience. And I've, I've tried to pare away. There are lots of people who will never care, will not be interested, will not want this book. Um, I've, I've targeted an error audience. I think, I'm, I think we're discovering that that audience is larger than we thought it is, might be. I mean, I wrote this as a niche um, offering to people I know, to my friends and companions on this journey. But, um, and that's a couple thousand people. So that was worth writing a book for, but I, I think that audience is bigger than that. Um, and, and, and let's see, until you interrupt me with a question, Richard, I'm going to, I'm going to go on because uh, with respect to that audience, here's what's interesting as a, as a, as a, as an author and, and getting a book out for that audience, I'm, I felt like I needed to tell them two things. I need to tell them, you, whoever you're listening, um, this book is not going to tell you to leave the church. And this book is not going to tell you to stay. And it's not going to harangue you and tell you you have to stay or here's why you should stay. The audience is defined by people who have real issues but want to stay. I mean, you come to the book already with those two qualifications. And I'm not going to preach. I'm going to. We're going to talk about how to make it work, and that's. Um, I think that's an important distinction because almost everything I see in, in, the, in that 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 gets written or that gets said over the pulpit, or that gets said by ex-Mormons or by people who are really angry about the church, has either the characteristic of we're going to tell you why you have to stay, or we're going to tell you why you have to leave, and I'm. Assuming you've sorted that out for yourself, and I'm not going to... It's not my business. You work your path, but if you are in that defined category, we're going to talk about it. And what I'm finding is that that audience, those people, know almost instantly that they want this book. I mean, I don't have to do any hard sell. I just have to tell them what it's about. I almost have to just show them the title and... And then there'll be a question about, did you do a good job or did you do a bad job? And there you, I, can I, you know, can I understand the language and is it written reasonably well? But as soon as that target audience knows what the book's about, they want it. And I, it, it, it's because it's intended as a fit for that um, narrow but widening, um, broadening audience. I think the other big distinction, um, well, let me back up. I, I mean, there is a, there is a criticism I've heard already, which is this book didn't convince me to stay. And I sort of laughed, but that's, uh, it wasn't, that wasn't the job. That wasn't what this book was about in the first place. So I, yeah, I get it. Um, you're still on your way out, but that's, you know, that's your decision. The other, the other big distinction is that, this actually turns into a number of conversations. This book doesn't criticize the church. Um, I've got plenty to say on that front. If you want another book, a different book, but that's not this book. This book is not about what's wrong with the church or how to fix the church. Or um, it, it is. I mean, you can come up with some ideas when you read and say. It just shouldn't be this hard. You could say, I, "I well, I wish that would be different. I wish that would change. But um, I find, because I'm focused on the individual, I'm focused on what can you do? How can you survive? How can you make it work? Uh, the idea of fixing the church or criticizing the church is, it's a different book. It's a different conversation. And Plenty of people are actually doing that. I I don't need to add to that pile. Um, I do find that people want that. And uh, so I get some criticism saying, well, that's what I wanted. I wanted wanted 250 pages of of, uh, dissing on the church, and I didn't get that. Well, no, so the book isn't for you. I mean, go get another book. Uh, That's... uh, that's uh part of me defining an audience and trying to stick to it, trying to stick to it. Um, the other, I guess the, the last thing I'll say on that, that audience is that I really tried not to be prescriptive. I tried not to tell people what to do. I tried to give alternatives. I mean, one of my key principles is, break the binaries, that that we get stuck in, in or out, you're all in or you're out, um, it's true or it's not true, um, obey or disobey, uh, that all those binaries get people caught, stuck. I think they are damaging actually to, especially to people who are trying to work a path of Uh, awake awareness of issues and problems, but wanting to stay engaged in some fashion, those binaries just kill you. Um, And so one of the principles is break those binaries. But I don't want to then turn around and say, well, don't deal with obey or disobey, but do it my way. What I've tried to do over and over is say, well, not those binaries, but here's, here's five options. And if I can come up with five options, you can come up with some more. But there are, there are, there, middle way is not a third way. Middle way is individual decision in an almost infinite variety of ways. And that's how I try to work it. Uh, at the same time, I felt it very important that I be present, that I be not an ivory tower academic about this, but that I be present because I really am. I mean, this is my journey too. I'm in process. I'm working this same road. And so while I hesitated and I edited myself um, a dozen times in the book, I will say, and here's where I am right now, and I'm working this same. Here's five options, and this happens to be the one I'm working on. That's not to be prescriptive and say you should be. It's just to say, I'm on this same road. I'm working this journey, and this is real life in real time. And I, I, I think that's a strength. I could imagine it being criticized, but I didn't think I could do this book any other way, I felt like I had to be, I had to be fully present in the in the story.
0: On behalf of our listeners, Chris, I've just enjoyed this. I've been glad not to say anything because I'm just sort of on the edge of my chair. And you're a very gifted communicator, um, as well as telling a really powerful story and framing up the book. What a the word I want to use is grace, and I get emotional. There's so much grace in what you said, is this is my story. And these are the principles that have helped me. I've wanted to stay. And if you want to stay, I'm just sharing my personal story, which takes some real courage. You shared that in private groups, but to share it in a book and a podcast that anybody can listen to is take some courage. But then to write it from the perspective of, yeah, you could and I could be critical of the church. And there are things we, you know, are on... are critical of I guess but you've chosen not to go down that road and you've chosen to just honor people's individual journey but if this helps you and you want to stay perhaps my story will help you and there's very few stories like that out there um and you're right a lot of our sort of you know are agenda based and I think there's that's why I think this is helpful and I would guess And I hope people picked up, you know, in your earlier self where you, I think you described yourself as all in, it's not like you're writing this book to your earlier self to get you on the edge earlier. And you're not trying to get those people, you're not trying to move those people to where you are, which takes grace (laughs) because you recognize that's where they are and you're giving them grace to be there. And you're not trying to say, okay, the purpose of my book is to move everybody where I am, because you're gonna be a lot happier. I'm gonna be a lot happier because a lot more people are gonna I mean, have communities. I think it's a real point of maturity and grace. Um, so on behalf of our listeners and me personally, thank you. Um
1: listen- can, I, can I pick up on your word maturity? Um, <laughs> yeah. because um and if you if you've even started into the book, you will know why, where I'm going. Um as I worked on this. In, in fact, I started the book from the center, which was the chapter on talking with the bishop, which I really think is thematically the core chapter. Um, and dealing with a temple recommend interview and dealing with callings. And the, those were the things that you might expect to get when you pick up a book that's titled the way this is. Um, but I worked I learned a lot in doing the writing, and one of the things I came to understand, and then it became the underpinning, philosophical underpinning of the whole book, is that the process that we're talking about, the process that I'm talking about, is really the process of growing up, becoming an adult individuation. It's, it becomes dealing with the church, dealing with the bishop, dealing with the Council from general conference, dealing with all of the institutional, as an adult, dealing with other adults in a conversation, as opposed to um, where I start the book out, that most churches, most institutional churches are structured around a parent-child model, where the church is a parent telling the child, us, what to do. and. For someone on the edge, someone—I mean—I don't mean that this doesn't—that doesn't—that works for a lot of people, and that's fine. But for for people on the edge who want to make it work, I think that's an in um, intolerable situation if you continue in the model of being the child in a structure where the church is a parent telling you what to do, you will kick yourself out or you will just give up and uh, and shut down and take orders. Um, that's um, Neither one of those is life on the inside of the edge. And so the philosophical underpinning of the whole book is grow up, um, individuate, create an adult Self, who can, who then deals with the church, with the institution, with the bishop as an adult in an adult to adult conversation. That doesn't tell you that you don't do what they say. It tells you that you take it under advisement, in effect. It also tells you an and adult behavior is one that, picking up on things you just said, Richard, that allows other people their space and allows other people their own journey and recognizes that they are where they are and I don't need to be critical of that if they want to move I can provide some advice or some of my own experience but I I don't have any business telling other people where they should live their lives or how they should live their lives I I'm I'm in the business here of asking answering questions of and of offering alternatives, not of dictating or or becoming a substitute um, father figure. That's I. I don't want to take that church as father figure and turn it into me as father figure. That would be the height of arrogance <laughs> and and it would be a fatal mistake. It's just the wrong way to go.
0: It's very thoughtful. Talk about listeners. I'm looking at the chapters, and these are not all written by Chris. You've got Um, Some of my friends that have written chapters, like James Jones, David Doyle, and others. um, Introduce our listeners to why you had other people write chapters and an overview of those chapters.
1: Well, I'd like to say, and it's sort of true, that from the very beginning, I knew that, first of all, I wanted to be present in this book, I wanted to be genuine and real. And I knew that while I had a valuable platform from which to speak having been fully inside and decades on the edge i wasn't all things and so i looked for people who had an important voice that isn't mine Um, i also had encouragement i mean people are laudatory of that approach Uh, you know people will say i heard it the other day You took your privilege, which is tremendous. I have a tremendous amount of, I'm in a privileged position in 20 different ways. Um, I'm an old white man with a history, with a church heritage and pedigree. All those things, you know, (laughs) come together. But you took that privileged platform and platformed other people. And I, I know that's, you know, I didn't think that way, but it's true, and I'll take credit for doing that, <laughs> um, because I did honestly think, I need these voices. I need these voices. And so I, I went looking for them. I mean, people have said good, and you should, and all that, but I, I'm going to take credit for having thought it was important from the first instance. Um, and so we have a woman's point of view. We have a black man's point of view. We have a single woman's point of view. We have a gay man's point of view, um, it's, it was an interesting process finding people who, have, who can write, who are, have a powerful voice themselves, who also live in this liminal space of knowing the issues, of being very, very well aware of the problems and the challenges and yet have chosen for the time being to stay and to work on making it work so that they are both my audience and my speakers. And we can stand on that platform together. I mean, they are wonderful. I mean, I just, I I ended up thinking, let's do this book just so that these essays can get out. These these essays can get published. Um, I mean, each one is powerful. There is there is an interesting phenomenon that has happened which is um, people read and come back to me and say that essay that was that told the whole story you that could have been the whole book or that one really touched me and what's or i read that one and i was in tears for two days i mean all those kinds of reactions but what's interesting is it's almost everybody who comes back is coming back with a different one. And sometimes it's obvious, like you're a single woman. And so that one, that essay by a single woman is going to touch you. Sometimes it is not so obvious. Sometimes it's like, oh, that was my son's experience. And now I understand him better. Or I, I mean, there are different connections. I mean. There is one I'm, I I come back to. The, there is an essay that we titled um, "Raising Feminist Boys in a Sexist Church." Um, I'll tear up here. I don't know whether that will show up in the in the recording or not. But um, that essay was written by my daughter-in-law, um, and I tear up every time I read it. Um, I mean, I love all these essays. They're powerful. I, ha- I I love the people who have written them. I'm just so enthusiastic. But that essay, when you get to the near the end where Anne talks about what she wants for those boys, what she's trying to do for those boys, um, those are my grandsons she's talking about. And I want that for those boys. Um That's, so that's how it strikes me that it that's the one that grabs me because, because it gets personal. It gets to be about my grandson. And I think every reader who's come back to me with uh, a reference to those essays has something similar. That one grabbed me because it was my experience or it was my daughter's experience, or it was close to my life in a way that makes that's important, and I think that's so powerful. That's um, I couldn't have done that. I mean, I couldn't write those. I mean, I kind of I think I credit myself with pretty much understanding all the issues and concerns that each of those writers talks about. I mean, I'm not oblivious to the world and the tensions and the struggles, but it's not my voice, and I could not have written in. I mean, my voice would be. It would sound like an academic analyzing <laughs> and 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 discussing. And so, you know, the only essay I contributed there is about my own children, and uh, that, I mean, that's my voice about my children. And um, everyone else is someone talking about their life, their experience, and it's powerful in that way.
0: That was a beautiful segment. You. You've got a big heart when I hear you talk about your grandsons and your daughter-in-law and Bennett and listeners. I'm just going to read these, um, just so you know the sections. I, I think um, Chris is calling them um, essays. One's woman's perspective, Susan Hinckley. In,
1: in um, the
0: book, we pitched
1: them as chapters. But
0: chapters. They
1: each wrote it as an essay, and then because it worked, the structure of the of the book. It's it's a, it's chapter, a chapter in the book, but that's yeah.
0: Um, The next one is The Inside of the Edge for Single Adults, Myra Haslam, Living on the Inside of the Edge, A Gay Latter-day Saint Perspective, David Doyle, Black and Mormon, Activism to Survive, James Jones. And then there's four listeners that are Complicated Families, Complicated Families, Raising Children on the Edge. That's Chris Kimball. He mentioned that. Complicated Families, Raising Feminist Boys in a Sexist Church. Your daughter-in-law Ann Bennett that you reference with a big heart, and I love you. How much you care about your grandchildren, all of them. Complicated families, LGBTQ children. Shari siebers crawl if I'm saying her name right, and complicated families pers- pushing orthodoxy as the cemetery's daughter. And say her name for us, so I get it right. Hi, sir. Kaiser. Kaiser Berlin. Berlin Kalfusi. <laughs> Kyla Berlin Kafusi. So thank you. You know, I think, you know, Chris recognizes and I have sort of the same privileges. What can we do with our privilege to amplify the voices of others? So I love how you modeled that in your book. L- listeners, Um, just a little bit about my story and how it parallels a little bit about Chris. It was the policy statements that were jarring to me. That was probably my 25-year-ago event, and I ended up in a slightly different place than Chris. I hold a Temple Recommend and fully participate in the church, and I don't want to say Chris doesn't fully participate in the church, and we just give each other space. None of us look as lost or more in or more out. We're just two men on our journey, but Chris said some things. That, this is what helped me stay in the church, Is um, and it comes back to Chris's, It's you're either all in or you're there this binary we sometimes have, but getting away from that binary was key to helping me stay in the church. And my wife helped me because she just walked with me and just loved me and supported me. I went to my stake president, uh, my resident stake president. I was serving as a YSA Bishop during the time. And he gave me permission to have a couple fallen dominoes. And usually when all our dominoes fall, one falls, they all fall. That's sort of the imagery of dominoes. But he, in that he, Chris, it was a, it was a, he gave me nuance. He said, I'm not going to make my relationship with you about standing up your fallen dominoes. Let's talk about your dominoes that you still believe in and sort of make your way forward. And I've always kind of thought, Chris, I'll figure out a way someday to stand those fallen dominoes. But no, they never have. I just continue with fallen dominoes and standing dominoes. And that's just, and I don't think that'll ever change me. Or said another way, I'm going to go never go back to where I was pre-policy statements, just like you probably never go back to where you were. Um, and then your Facebook group. So, Gerald Lee vetted me. Um, in 2016, I looked it up, and you were part of that group, and that's how I connected with you. And you were a very seasoned voice, and there's a lot. I don't want to you know, rank you above the others, but you were very helpful for me because your story was a little bit like me. And Lily did such a great job. She's been on a couple podcasts vetting me, but it is exactly what you said. It took a little bit of time to vet me, and Geralee was wondering if I was coming in there to save everybody else and that had questions and be prescriptive, but no, she recognized that I just needed the community. But the community gave me tools just like, and this is a vote, listeners to read Chris's book. If you're like me um, and you want to stay... And you're looking for a kind of a non-prescriptive voice to share their story and also principles that perhaps can help you stay. There's not a lot of books in this space, and that's one of the reasons I see it, um, you know, being one of the top books on Amazon for LDS readers. And I think it'll stay that way for quite a while. My feeling is that books in this space there's so few. Whenever there's a book that comes along, it sort of has a long shelf life. You may do edition two in five years. Um, So I'm just grateful for Chris and what he's done. I want to go back to listeners that are angry and you, you were angry and I've been angry and um, you were also silent and I'm not a therapist, but that seems like a hard spot to be in both angry and silent. (laughs) And you were able to stay in that space for a period of time. And maybe you weren't silent in individual conversations and, that allowed you to sort of live with anger, and maybe you weren't completely silent, but you were silent at church. Talk to listeners that are angry and or silent, and just and maybe that's in your book. But how they can navigate that?
1: Well, it's interesting. For there is a chapter in the book about anger, and <laughs> it it uh, basically says, "See a therapist." <laughs> no, it, Good. it actually says two different things and that's that's part of the answer in that period when i was angry and silent that silence has to do with the church and the church community i mean i was in regular you know, on the couch therapy talk Good. therapy and uh and that was very important and i would recommend it and i know it's hard to find and i know it's hard to afford uh, but that's um I don't think that's the church's business. And I don't think it's the community's business. Where and that's basically what I say in the chapter about anger is that the church community, in my experience, does not know what to do with anger, does not handle it very well. And therefore, for for us who are angry and still trying to be engaged, what we need to do is is a stoic approach, which is to not act out of anger, but to act out of principle, to act out of a, a rational decision-making, because the church and the church community pretty much universally, in my experience, deals with anger as if it's a, um, a, 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 a at least a short-term uh, mental break and mental illness, and we'll just exclude you. We'll treat it as your problem. So for purposes of the church community, what I preach is, is don't act out of anger. Um, take it elsewhere. Get therapy. Deal with it. It's not a good thing. It's a something you should work with, but the church community is not the place to do that. It's just not equipped and not able I, frankly, I don't think bishops are generally able, or equipped, or trained to deal with anger. Um, that, to me, is a related to this overall pitch I make to grow up to be an adult about mm. it. That is not to expect of the church all things, not to expect the church to change to be the way I want it to be, but to Take the church as and the church community as what they are right now, in process, in work, but probably not changing as fast as you want them to. And so deal with the church and the church community as it is. Um, ask for what it can provide and go elsewhere for what you need that is not regularly or easily available from the church that's very much different but consistent with my different from the nor what you hear from the church different from what you hear you know we're everything we can do everything for you um, I don't believe that and I don't believe it works for people who are trying to live on the inside of the edge uh, that the the church simply is not all things to all people and uh, so I'm and that's a long way around. It's a good answer. I'm I don't think the church is very good about anger and I go find a professional therapist.
0: Yeah. And I recognize church can generate pain and pain can lead to anger. And it's hard then to turn back to the church community. If it's the source of the pain that leads to the anger, I think anger anger is generally a secondary emotion to pain. And if that originates from the church community in some way, then I love Chris's advice to, um, sort of adultly a deal with that by turning to other sources to get through that. And perhaps even the atonement can help heal you at some point. There is a idea that Christ descended below things, and it's not sin-related, but it's just pain-related, and and it's a long journey. I feel some of those same things, Chris, and still do, and and so your story's not a lot different than mine. I've always felt, and Chris is teaching this, that we're all cafeteria Mormons, and we shouldn't um, weaponize that statement. We're all work in process, and which church should not be a place where we're sifting each other based on this or that. I've always felt the gate is wide, and I think Elder Uchtdorf teaches this: the gate's wide at the congregation level. There shouldn't be a belief or behavior hurdle. You don't need a temple recommend to walk in the door of a chapel or any other sort of hurdle, and we should not look at people by their station in any way in our congregations. And Let's honor their personal journeys, and I think our job as fellow Latter-day Saints is just love and support and accept and learn from people, and this doctrine of belonging that other Christopherson, I think it applies to people like Chris that are walking, um, and me and many others that are walking the inside of the edge. They need to feel like they belong. And not that they'll just belong when they kind of get right back in the middle where maybe the majority of the members are. But that's just some of my thoughts, Chris. And I'm going to, um, listeners, I'm going to turn it back to Chris for any final comments. But just for the show notes, we'll link to Chris's book, obviously, on Amazon. Um, we'll link to this Waters of Mormon group. We did talk about that in episode 592 with Gerald E. Renshaw and Peter Ryan, if you're familiar. It's the same group we're talking about. Also, shout out to Steve Evans at BBC Press and all the people at BCC Press that are working to bring books like this forward and the work you're doing in our faith community. And just remember what Chris talked about with Steve Evans. We need a book to help people stay. And even though you don't want to say this is a book to help people stay because you don't want to be prescriptive, this is still a book for those that want to stay, to have tools to help them stay. And listeners... If you feel impressed and you're right in the middle, but you want to help people stay that are on the edge, I'm going to right, living on the edge, sometimes a book like this can give you more tools. I've always felt, I'm talking too much, the toolbox to bring people in the church, read, pray, and and go to church may be different than the toolbox to help people stay in the church that want to stay in the church. And this book, even though Chris isn't sort of saying it's for you, you might feel impressed to pick up this book as a local leader, as a parent, even a parent of younger kids, you want to have better tools as they age up. This book you may find really helpful. It may, it's not, is its goal isn't to move you to the edge of the inside from the middle or whatever we're describing that space, but give you tools to minister to those in a more effective way than on the um, inside of the edge. So with that, I'll turn it back to Chris for as long of a closing segment as you want to do, my friend. I just
1: wanted to pick up, in fact, you gave me the perfect segue there, because I wanted to end with a little more comment about audience. Yeah. Um, I, we've talked about the the target audience, the people I know and knew when I was writing, and they know who they are, and they find the book. I, I'm, I continue to be, and we've talked about this a little bit, Richard. I, 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 interested in the extended audience, the 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 rest of us or the rest of you. Um, and so I think let me let me parse that a little bit in 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 just a couple of minutes. It seems to me that people who have left the church are probably not interested and probably will never pick up the book. And if they do, the first couple of pages will probably tell them <laughs> put it back down seems to me that the people who are really all in loyal happy probably are not in the spaces where they'll even hear about this book and uh, that's fine and they probably have no interest and that's fine um, there's a middle crowd that is that I've I've come across who are curious who are yeah. Kind of, what is this middle way people are talking about? What is what is this about? Um, maybe, maybe if you're curious, you pick up the book. Frankly, I think 300 plus pages is a little heavy. If if you're just casually curious, um, I'm not going to try to sell it to you. That it's it's probably too much. But there are two audiences that I'm really interested in approaching, and in, in my head. I call them the parents and the bishops. Um, The parents, and that's a general term, it's just my label, are are friends and family of members in crisis. They're friends and family who really care and really love those people who are my target audience, who are in crisis, who are wanting a way to stay. Um, I think this book is not addressed to you. You won't hear, it won't, it won't sound like I'm talking to you at all. If you read, it will be like watching another world from the side, but I think it will provide a really important, valuable insight into what's going on in your son's life, in your brother's life, in the life of, I just gave a copy to a friend of mine who is not in the target audience, but he immediately said, My sister, my sister needs this, and I'm going to read it to understand her better.
0: That's cool. Um,
1: that's an important audience, and I want to get the word to that audience, but I label parents, but of course it's broader than that. And the last one is the bishops, which are church leaders. I, bishops take presidents, probably at that, at that, especially at that local level whose work touches individual members' lives on a daily basis. Um, Not just church leaders who are curious, not the leaders who are checking out to see if I criticize them. I mean, of course, some people are going to pick it up and look to see if I dissed on what you just said in conference last week. But I, I didn't do very much of that. But if you want to look, go ahead. But that's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking about the bishops and the stake presidents who have a genuine desire to be pastoral, to really, to help, to succor, to listen, to support their members in their words and stakes who are in the struggle. And I I really believe, I'm not, I mean, I'm not selling, I didn't write for this purpose, but I believe you will find value in this book. If that's you, if you, if you have an interest in being that kind of pastoral leader, I think you'll learn something.
0: That was great, uh, Chris. On behalf of all of our listeners, thank you. You are very good on a podcast. You're very—I can tell—you've done a lot of legal work and taught a lot, but you have a pastoral heart when you talked about your daughter-in-law, and I can tell you came. This whole book is about love, and your love for our community, and your love for people that are walking the same road that we're walking and um, your love to give pastoral tools to local leaders to be able to better support people walking this road that want to do the right thing, but just haven't been given sometimes the right tools, the right framework to do that. So um, please listeners, check out this book, share it with others. And this is Richard Osler and Chris Kimball signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.